Hi, this is Beth Capici and welcome to the Never Perfect Podcast. I'm a psychologist and I believe that embracing the fact that no aspect of life is perfect actually makes us happier and healthier and motivates us to achieve more. It also helps us become more real and compassionate with ourselves and others. In my counseling office, I deal with a little bit of everything. So in this podcast, you'll also probably be hearing a little bit of everything. Not only professional advice, but also some of my favorite and least favorite personal stories. I'm also going to be interviewing people who are brave enough to share their stories with us. I believe that everyone has a lot to teach and a lot to learn no matter what their background is and in spite of their imperfections. You don't have to be perfect to be inspiring. Today, I have asked a former client of mine named Christina to be here for an interview, and she was the first person that came to mind when I thought about interviewing clients about their experience with mental health struggles. Christina has experienced a really long battle with severe depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts, including self-sabotage and failure over the past 15 years. And many people act out when they're depressed or anxious or having a battle with mental health issues instead of talking about those issues. And I first met Christina about 15 years ago And she's now in her late 20s, around 30. And she has risen above after many years of struggling. And she's a hero of mine, not only for how she endured and pursued better mental health and found ways to get better and to heal and not always in the same way that others might have healed. She did use counseling and she tried medication, which didn't actually work in her case. She had a really unique solution along with counseling was music that saved her life at times and a cat that was there for her when she needed him or her and a dog, which has been her lifeline. Christina is doing amazingly well after many years of struggling through school and dropping out of classes and just not reaching her potential. And now she is at the top of her class in vet school and her depression is at a very manageable level. And the other reason she's a hero of mine is because she's brave enough to share her story with people And she is a spokesperson for mental health issues, and she's really intensely wanting people to know that they're not alone and to share her story to help others in any way that she can.
So I have a special guest here, and I would like to share some of my thoughts with her. And she is a person who's very passionate about using her story and her struggles with mental illness to help other people. So this is Christina. Hello. And we are going to talk about her story with mental illness. And I met her when she was about 15 years old. And she's now around age 30. Mm -hmm. And she has had a powerful journey and she has a powerful story, but she's been through a lot. So, um, Christina, would you want to sort of talk about your early years of depression and battling depression and how all that went for you? Sure. So, um, like you said, I started seeing you when I was like 15 in high school, but, um, I honestly don't remember a time in my life before mental illness. That was just something that has been a common thread throughout. I think I like came out the womb with depression, but (laughs) (laughs) so I kind of struggled in middle school and high school with making friends and, um, keeping on top of classwork and stuff. I just, um, had a serious lack of motivation and, um, I had definitely, there were years that were harder than others in high school and, um, yeah, I always struggled, like I said, with depression, anxiety, definitely social anxiety, and that all kind of continued into college. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it was pretty crippling and debilitating for you, wasn't it? Yeah, um, definitely, it got worse. Like it was pretty bad in high school, and then throughout the years in college, it kind of gradually got worse until it came to a peak, or um, I guess more of a a crevice when I was like 22, 23, Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah. A real low point, like breaking point. Yeah, for sure. Well, I remember when I first met you, you talked about depression and feeling suicidal. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'll never forget is you had a list of bands that saved you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely had. I still have a playlist on my Spotify. It's called "The Song Save Your Life," and um, wow, yeah, it's just like the songs I would listen to when I was having a really hard time, and still listen to sometimes. I don't need the playlist luckily as much anymore, but at the time, I definitely did play it on repeat all the time, and um, wow, you would just like find songs that really spoke to me, and I felt like they were like talking directly to me with the message that they had. And, um, it also kind of like, I love going to concerts. And so at my worst times when I was feeling suicidal, I used concerts as like, well, you can't kill yourself. You're going to see my chemical romance in two weeks. Uh So that was just another thing that I had when I say like band saved my life. It just gave me something to look forward to when I didn't feel like I had anything else to look forward to. Yes. Wow. So having something in the future that gives you hope or that you know you're going to enjoy. Um, But I remember the first time you said, these were bands that literally saved my life. And I feel like even as a teenager, you were brave enough to post things like that on Facebook or somewhere, like to, to share with others, these, this music saved my life. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always been pretty open about, my struggle with mental illness. I didn't, um, 
guess social media wasn't really as big when yeah. I was back when I was in like high school and middle school and stuff like that. But I was always very um, open talking about mm-hmm. bands and the bands that really got me through everything. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I guess I just wanted to share them with everyone because yeah. if they helped me, they might help someone else too. Yeah. I just somehow remembered you mentoring some younger teenagers that you knew were struggling with depression or something. Yeah, I when you like go to concerts, if you go early, you make friends in line. Like if you go and camp out all day, which I did most of the time, and so we would meet um, like younger fans of bands that we loved and just take them under our wing. I like to say I'm the mom friend of like everyone. So <laughs> I my mental illness has an override switch where if I find someone else who's struggling, then I'm able to kind of take them under my wing and help them and just kind of show them like. Like it gets better and eventually you'll be my age and things won't be as crappy as they are right now because middle school sucks for everyone. So Yes. Well, your passion for people knowing that they're not alone and mental illness, as you mentioned in one of our conversations, is very isolating and it mm-hmm. makes you feel very lonely and you want people to know they're not alone. So you're very open and transparent and not ashamed and not you like there's no need to have a stigma around this. I just want to let people know I'm here. I understand and life can get better and I don't mind telling anyone I have to. And those who can't relate may not benefit from it, but those who can, it might change their life or give them hope. Yeah. I literally talk about my mental illness all the time. I don't see like the point in hiding it because it was such a struggle for me and I feel like I worked so hard to overcome it. Why would I not be proud of that? Why would I not want to tell everyone about that and give hope to someone who might be going through the same thing now that like my life has turned a complete 180 and why shouldn't I let other people know that like there is so much hope in the future? Yes. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted you to come here today is because you have so much to offer people. You've been through so much, but you have had such a 180. And I thought it might give people hope who are very depressed. And you had very severe depression and, you know, fairly severe anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I would love for you to share a little bit about your time in college because I have worked with quite a few people over the years that have dropped out of classes or dropped out of an entire semester and had to repeat many, many classes, many semesters, sometimes secretly um, because they were so depressed and they didn't know what to do to, you know, get a medical withdrawal or to get help. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, um, I was in undergrad for nine years because I did a lot of that where I would just decide that I wasn't going to go to class for the rest of the semester um, when my depression and anxiety was at its worst and I just didn't have the energy. I felt like it took all of my energy to just be alive that day. Mm. I didn't have any despair to go to this class that I didn't really care about. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was too ashamed to tell my family, like, I need to drop out. So I would just fail everything and then take the classes again the next semester and not tell my parents that that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't remember what, why we started talking about this, what you asked me, but <laughs> I was asking just to talk a little bit about your journey, how depression affected your schooling and your education, yeah. because I know that you have always been exceptionally intelligent. You have a very high achieving, high educated family, and they knew they were probably scratching their heads like, and you were at a very high pressure, rigorous school mm-hmm. and you were barely studying. Yeah. Not and yeah, I remember thinking too, like, is she rebelling? Like, why is she not trying? Because we know she's smart enough, but and she's at such a hard school, but she's not even trying. Yeah, yeah. No, I would just go to class, and my friends would be like, "Oh, are you ready for the test today?" And I was like, "I have no idea what you're talking about." Like, I wouldn't even know that we had an exam. That's how little I tried. Or I would skip class in college, and then later find out we had had an exam. Like, mm-hmm. I did not try at all. And um, like we talked about earlier, I think a lot of that was I was afraid to fail. And so for me, it's always been like, well, if I don't even try, then if I fail, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But I would be mortified if I put my all into something and then I fail at it. Like Mm -hmm. how embarrassing would that be to have to tell my friends or my family, like I've studied really, really hard for this and I still failed it. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reality is I'm not going to fail it. Like I am a smart person. If I study even a little bit, like my grades would be fine. But the anxiety part of my brain was like, oh no, like you're definitely going to fail it. So let's just not even try. Let's just like not do anything. And so I was so paralyzed by that fear that it was easier to just not even try. Yes. To just not do anything. Well, that brings up a lot of really great points. It sounds like you were very self-protective and had a fear of vulnerability, a fear of putting yourself out there. And it makes me think about the symptoms of depression, which would be probably good to bring up today, even though I'm sure you're very aware of them. But it's hard not to, probably for parents, not to judge or be critical or demeaning or somehow just not supportive when their child starts sleeping through classes, avoiding classes. I worked with college students for about 10 years before I moved to Chattanooga and did private practice with more of a variety of ages. But I worked with so many college students that would drop out. They couldn't wake up in the morning. They didn't have the energy to go talk to their professors or the courage to talk to their parents. And you can understand parents being very frustrated, like you just cost me a semester of tuition and you could have maybe gotten money back if you'd, you know, done a medical withdrawal. But when you are depressed, some of the symptoms such as low motivation, low energy, feeling fatigued, feelings of worthlessness. And I like to add the word irrational feelings of worthlessness because to outsiders looking in on the person who feels worthless, they're like, you're crazy. Like Mm -hmm. you have so much to offer. Why are you telling yourself this? But those dark colored glasses just kind of take over and they invade every aspect of the way you view yourself specifically Mm -hmm. and your life. And so feeling hopeless, meaningless, thoughts of death or suicide, changes in eating, more or less, changes in sleeping, more or less. And hypersomnia is a frequent problem. You know, college kids go to bed late or they can't sleep. So then they sleep until 10. They can't attend their eight o'clock classes and they don't have the energy to um, go face their parents or face their professors or even sometimes get out of the bed. Yeah. So, um, 
I, there's a phrase that I heard somewhere years ago that said, when you're depressed, everything is an effort. Yeah. And you can just feel almost like you have a hundred pounds of weight in your feet. And it's just like, I can't, or mentally, mental weight. Um, so for you to take nine years to get through college as intelligent as you are with very debilitating depression, you know, it's really nice that you're willing to share that because there are people whose parents berate them for taking five or six years and it has nothing to do with your intellectual capability, but your emotional, um, capability. And you said earlier, not on the podcast, but you told me earlier that you had tried several medications and you couldn't tolerate them. Yeah, no, I had horrible side effects on everything I tried. And it wasn't like, I know you start taking a new medication. It can take like six weeks for the side effects to go away. But for me, the side effects were like, I took Zoloft and my body was so itchy. I was literally scratching with a knife until I would bleed. And I was like, I can't do that for six weeks. I'm sorry. Or like I took Prozac and I started it on like a Thursday and the following Friday I had slept six hours the entire week. And I was like, I can't do this for six weeks. I'm sorry. I can't do it. Yeah. So for every medicine that I tried, there was something and it was always like that bizarre side effect that no one ever gets, but I got it for everything that I tried. And I was like, I can't live like this for six weeks. This is worse than what it was like before. So I just can't do it. So you're like, I'm the one in a thousand that's having this weird side effect. Yeah. And my doctor was like, well, that doesn't usually happen. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you because it's happening to me. So like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Wow. That must've been really discouraging. And you know, sometimes people would want to give up. Yeah. And sometimes I tell clients who are, I forgot to mention one of the really important symptoms of depression. I'm sure I mentioned a couple. I mean, there can, you can be like your body can feel agitated and we call it psychomotor agitation or psychomotor slowing. But another huge one is thoughts of death or suicide. Mm -hmm. And many, many people have thoughts of death and thoughts of suicide, which are different than intent to do it or plan to do it. Um, So we, of course, assess that very carefully. Um, And, you know, there are many people who have spent years wishing they could die. We call that passive suicidal ideation. And I'd love for to hear some of your thoughts on that here in a minute. But they they wouldn't do it because they wouldn't want to hurt someone or because of their moral values but they just would are they're almost angry that they're alive and and then there of course are people who really want to die and have thoughts of how they would kill themselves and they're just hanging on by their fingertips trying not to do it yeah i think i've I've definitely been both of those people um the passive thoughts of suicide is like I don't know. It's, it was always in the back of my mind. It was always like suicide as an option. And so it was like, if I thought I was going to fail an exam or I don't know, I was going to do something and people were going to be embarrassed or I was going to be embarrassed or my parents would be ashamed of me or whatever. It was always like, well, you can always just kill yourself. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm not going to, like, I don't want to do that, but it was an option. Like I always had an escape route Mm -hmm. and it took me a long time to realize like, that's not normal. (laughs) Like everybody doesn't think that way. And because for me, it was just like, it had always been that way. Like, oh, well, you have an escape plan if you need it. Yes. And I was like, no, like, that's not how people think usually. Like, you, right. know, you should probably do something about that. <laughs> that's true. It's hard to, 
for a friend or family member to talk to someone that's that severely depressed and find a way to say, I understand how you feel and it makes sense that you feel that way because you're very, very low, very depressed but to not act like it's normal to be that low. Mm -hmm. And I have had parents tell their kids over the years, everyone feels this way. And I think that even though they're trying to be validating and make their child feel normal, you know, their intentions might be good, but that can really lower their hope. Like if this is how I'm going to feel and everybody feels, if life can't be better than miserable, I don't want to be alive. So it's a hard line to, to find and maybe to say, honey, sounds like you're depressed. And these are very, very normal feelings when you're severely depressed, but being this depressed is not normal. And there are a lot of things we can do to try to work on that. And let's talk about what we can do, whether that be therapy, medication, life changes, talking to family more, exercising more. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about that can help depression, but just to know it doesn't have to be this way. You shouldn't be feeling this way um, for a long time. This is not a way to live. Yeah. And that, like, I remember one time my sister and I had a conversation and she was like, I've never been suicidal. Like, I've never thought about killing myself. And I was like, how? How is that possible? Because I've been thinking about that my whole life. Like, my earliest memories, I wow. still felt that way. So how is that possible that you've never felt that way? And that was kind of an eye-opener to me to be like, there are people who don't feel that way. Like, that's not the norm. Yes. You, know? so you thought like, maybe this is all I've ever known. Maybe everyone yeah, feels everyone's this way. Everyone's just in misery all the time. And it's like, no, that's not true. Like, you, you don't have to feel that way. That's a powerful point. I mean... And it is hard for people that have severe depression to feel understood Mm -hmm. um, and to know how do you help someone that doesn't understand how you're feeling to be sympathetic and to imagine how you feel. So, um, well, I want to come back a little bit more to suicide specifically a little bit later and, and share some things and hear some things about your experience, because many people who will be listening will have either felt this way, had relatives feel this way, or even relatives that have and loved ones that have attempted or even completed suicide. Mm -hmm. And trying to understand that is incredibly difficult. So can you tell us a little bit about what helped you turn around from your depression. And I guess I would like to maybe ask you at your most severe, I think I know the answer here, but at your lowest point, how severe was your depression on a one to 10 scale? Um, definitely a 10, at least (laughs) not more. Yes. You mentioned a year around 21 or 22 that you never left your room. Yeah. I was like 22. It was in 2012. And I, would not leave my apartment. I um, left for like one class and one horseback riding lesson. And that was it. Like I remember I would stop on the way home from my riding lesson and get enough fast food to last me the rest of the week. And then I would get like four drinks. So the guy thought I wasn't getting it just for me. And then that's what I would eat for the rest of the week because I didn't want to go to the grocery store and like I didn't want to order food. Like, I didn't want to have to talk to a delivery person even. Like, that was too much even. Everything was just so difficult. Yeah. You just had no energy. No, none. I got, I I remember, like, when I talk about my absolute lowest point is, like, a very distinct memory in my mind. I 
was in my bed in Murfreesboro with my cats watching Netflix on my computer and I was so tired I wanted to go to bed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, you were saying Yeah, I'll start over. I was in Murfreesboro with my cats watching Netflix on my computer and I was really, really tired and I wanted to go to sleep. But in my head I was like, if you want to go to sleep, you have to close your computer. You have to put your computer to the side. You have to roll over and get comfortable to go to sleep. Like, that's too much. Wow. I can't do that. That's too much energy. Wow. So I just stayed awake all night watching Netflix and, like, crying because I was tired, but I didn't have enough energy to go to sleep. I'm like, that makes no sense. Right. But in, I definitely look back and I'm like, that was the worst of it. Like, to not even have the energy to go to sleep. That's crazy. You're so frustrated that you can't sleep. But you don't have the energy to turn anything off. Yeah. To just shut my computer and roll over. Like, I didn't even have that. So then you just kind of stayed awake all night, which probably depleted you even more. Yeah. And then you're frustrated. Yeah, and I couldn't sleep. I was just, like, crying because I was so sad. I couldn't sleep. And I didn't, like, I did not have the energy to go to sleep. Well, and it all just builds on itself. Mm -hmm. Like, you think about things snowballing in a negative way. I mean, the sleep disruption makes you struggle you know with energy and concentration and motivation and all that and then you oversleep and then you miss more class and then you feel more shame or guilt or powerlessness or whatever and then you beat yourself up and yeah. then you feel more depressed and it just kind of you you dig yourself a deeper and deeper hole yeah well and it's also like how can you be expected to have the energy to go to class and study for an exam and pass an exam when you don't even have the energy to get out of bed. Like, yes. how are you supposed to find that energy? Sometimes it is impossible or it feels impossible. Oh, yeah. And you're not sleeping well, not eating well, probably don't have the energy to take a lot of the supplements that have really been shown to help produce the neurotransmitters that are implicated with depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, again, it just builds on itself mm-hmm. and in isolation um, oh, I forgot a really big piece of depression is what we call anhedonia, which is an inability to experience pleasure or a loss of interest or pleasure in things you used to enjoy. So then you get more and more isolated. Um, and, you know, trouble concentrating, of course, is another one that I don't think I mentioned. But you look at how, how all of that would affect someone's concentration in college work, their productivity, and then their guilt, feelings of guilt. There's another one. Mm -hmm. Feelings of guilt, worthlessness, hopelessness. I mean, all that just builds on itself. And then people don't necessarily understand, or you don't have the energy to reach out. And it just snowballs and spirals into a really dark, dark, dark place. Yeah. And it can, I mean, it feels embarrassing sometimes to have to, like, how are you supposed to tell your parents oh, my apartment's a disaster and I haven't, you know, gone to class in two weeks because I don't have the energy. Like, that's embarrassing to have to admit being that powerless to someone. And I think that's a big part of it too, just, and that's why mental illness can be so isolating because it's hard just to say, this is how I'm feeling, like, this sucks. I need someone to help me when you can't even tell someone what's going on because you're too embarrassed because you feel like you're the only one. Right. Well, things seem so easy to people that don't experience them. And some people are higher in empathy or an ability to take a different perspective. But a lot of people will, with the best of intentions, make it sound easy to do things that aren't 
you know, a struggle for them. Like, well, just get out of bed. Mm -hmm. Just go to bed earlier. Just Just start doing yoga. Yeah. Yeah. Just exercise. Just go to the store and start cooking fresher food. And but when you don't have energy and motivation and all that, that's impossible. Yeah. I remember a series of cartoons, and you and I may have talked about this. There's some really neat cartoons about depression that I have seen some people use that are just powerful ways to help people understand what depressed individuals feel like. And one of them was a person that had fallen through a hole in their floor and that all you can see is their head. Mm-hmm. And another one is like these little monster looking creatures that come in a boat and it said something like the the little monsters are like depression caricatures or whatever. And they come to visit and you never know how long they're going to stay and how long they're going to be there or when they're going to leave. Have you seen any of these? Yeah. And I like my favorite. Um, you might have read it. My favorite cartoon about depression is uh, it's from Hyperbole and a Half. Have you read that no. one? It's amazing. I'm definitely going to send it to you. Oh, good. But. At one point, she talks about depression as, like, having dead goldfish. And you tell people about it, and they are saying, like, well, have you tried feeding them? Like, (laughs) have you, like, well, we'll get you new goldfish, you know? And it's like, I just want someone to acknowledge how dead my goldfish are. Right. Just tell me, I'm sorry, your goldfish are super dead. That sucks. Like, stop telling me I should just feed them. They're dead. Yeah. we got to be real here. Yeah. That's my favorite one. That's hilarious. Yeah, that one was so relatable to me. Like, stop giving me solutions for problems I don't have. Just tell me, I'm sorry, it sucks your goldfish are dead. Because it does. It sucks. Yeah, just call a spade a spade. Like, no magical thinking or denial. No, you can't bring my goldfish back to life. Like, just tell me. It's okay. It sucks. Oh, that's hilarious. But it is it is easy to, for me to imagine in other ways where it's hard to understand someone that if they're 90 pounds and they look like they're starving to death with an eating disorder, just like people will say, start eating, yeah. you know, and of course, as a psychologist, I don't do that. But if I wasn't a psychologist, I might say it's so easy just eat, you know, or it's so easy to stop being an alcoholic, just drink. But it's not. I mean, these diseases are terribly debilitating and difficult and just trying to have humility and and empathy and validation even if you don't understand it like this must be terribly hard I can't understand it because I don't go through it Mm -hmm. Um, even like a panic attack so um, and we we might talk a little bit about anxiety here in a minute but how would you rate the severity of your depression now um I the thing is, like I like I said, I've done 180. My life is so much better now, and I am so much happier. But I also know depression is something I'm going to have for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I would still say on a scale of 1 to 10, most days it's probably like a 3 or a 4. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely less than a 10. And even like compared to what it was before, it could even be lower than that. And like some days it's a 0. You know, like some days I feel great. Mm-hmm. But... I still have like bad days. Like I say, healing is not linear. Like you're Uh going to have steps backward, but if you just keep moving forward, like it's okay. So great point. Some days are much better, but it's not like I'm cured. It's not like I know the magical cure for depression. I definitely don't. True. Well, and I love that because a lot of people have a double standard with mental illness compared to physical illness. Mm And they don't think twice about saying, oh, my child has asthma, give them an inhaler. They have allergies, give them whatever allergy medication. 
you know, anything, insulin, they don't question glasses or braces or anything, but our bodies are all dysregulated. Mm -hmm. I always say everybody's body is out of whack in some way. Mm -hmm. And some of that is psychological. Some of that is physical. Some of that is, you know, chemical or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Why are antidepressants or medications like that, you know, so much of a struggle or so resisted. And now I do have to say that I think there are a lot of things that can help people that don't involve medication, but sometimes it seems really clear, and I can talk about this at a later time, but that it is kind of indicated or necessary for someone to take medication if you've tried other things and nothing helps. And, you know, so that's a good segue into can you tell us about what happened from 2012 until today that helped you go from a 10 to like an average of maybe a three on your depression? Yeah, I'm, we were kind of talking about this earlier. I And I've heard this from people who've been on a similar like trajectory that I have, that I just woke up one day and realized I didn't want to be miserable anymore, that I didn't I couldn't bear the thought of the rest of my life being the way that it was. And I was like, we have to do something like we can't do this anymore. Yes. So like you either got to end it or you got to figure it out because I'm not going to do this anymore. And yes. um, so luckily I decided to move forward and I got a dog and he was the best decision I've ever made. He definitely um, changed my life. So for me, that was definitely um, the turning point was getting my dog for sure. Can you say the most important aspects of that dog and what he changed for you in your life? I, yes, I chose the breed that I did because I knew they were, my dog's an Australian Shepherd and they are um, Velcro dogs. So I was like, I want a dog that is obsessed with me because I feel so bad about myself all the time. I just want something to love me all the time. And so I got an Australian Shepherd and he is so true to the Velcro Velcro dog stigma. He's like stuck to me like glue all the time. And um, so in the beginning, that was a big part of it was the days that I felt horrible. And even still, like if I'm having a bad day, he thinks I am like the moon and the stars. (laughs) Yeah. He thinks I'm perfect. He's like, my mom is the greatest person who's ever walked the face of the planet. And so if I'm like, even if I'm having days where I'm like, Oh, I'm the worst. He's like, no, you're the best. And I'm like, all right, I can't be that bad. So that was a big one. But, um, he also just got me out of the house. I went from never leaving the house at all to, okay, well he has to go to the dog park. He has to go to obedience school. He has to go to pet smart. So we went somewhere every single day and I started talking to people because they would talk about my dog and it was easier to talk about my dog than to have to talk about me. Yes. It just kind of taught me like how to open up to people again and how to leave my house again. And yes, I don't know. He, I say he gave me my life back and he really did. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, they say that a lot of people die within 18 months of losing their sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And that dog, Cooper, gave Mm -hmm. you a sense of purpose and comfort and unconditional love Mm -hmm. and got you out of the house Mm -hmm. and lowered your social anxiety to where you could just more easily talk to people and start kind of incrementally facing those 
the fear uh, that so many socially anxious people have of, what do I say? What if this sounds stupid? Do they want to talk to me? People were approaching you and it just kind of got you out of your head more and... Yeah, everyone wants to talk to my dog. He's very beautiful. <laughs> so, like, people would come up to me, and before, if I didn't have the dog, it would be like, oh, God, like, this person's getting close to me. What do they want? And now it's like, well, they for sure want to pet my dog. That's fine. And then they'll be like, oh, he's so handsome. How old is he? What's his name? And stuff like that. And so it just gives you something to talk to these strangers about and just kind of opens the door and makes it easier. And I would take him, like, if I am going to meet a big group of people for the first time, I'll take him sometimes with me because then it's like I have something to kind of draw attention away from me. And then uh-huh. that keeps my anxiety at a manageable level until I'm able to like make friends and start talking to people. And I feel more comfortable in a situation. Kind of breaks the ice for you yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I just like, he didn't cure anything really. He just like made it more manageable to the point where I am able to cope with it until like I feel more at ease and more like I can talk to people and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So. Well, so when your depression started to lift because of the dog, then you were able to start to meet your potential more and have more energy. Mm-hmm. When you're happy, you have more energy. And then you were able to graduate college and then start thinking more about your career and what you wanted to do. Yeah, I got Cooper in 2013, and then um, the year, this following spring, so about a year later, was when I um, really decided, like, I wanted to go to vet school, and that was kind of when I started trying again, and I feel like in some ways, like, I wanted to be the person that my dog thought I was and people like say that as a joke like they want to be the person their dog (laughs) thinks they are but it's true like I wanted to be the greatest mom on earth so I was like I'm gonna go to vet school like I'm gonna actually do something with my life and um so that was the following year that I decided to go back to vet school and which had been my dream all along but I kind of detoured away from that so I came back to it when I was 24, 25, yeah. You finally had the energy to start using your intellect and to concentrate and just all that motivation and energy that you just are so depleted when you're depressed kind of came back and you had more oomph to actually accomplish things and believe in yourself. And it just all built on itself again. Yeah, and I think... um, like believing in myself is a big part of it. There's like some movie, I can't remember what movie, Mm -hmm. but a guy says all it takes is 20 seconds of insane courage to change your life. Wow. And so it was like in 20 seconds, I was like, I'm going to go to vet school. And then it was like, okay, it's too late. You already told everyone now you have to go to vet school. So (laughs) then it just kind of like spiraled from there and will not spiral, like, you know, picked up from there. And, um, just kind of everything fell into place after that once I was like just go for it like just do it and then everything's worked out so far yes it seems like you really are loving vet school and I know you're doing really well yeah I know you don't like to brag on yourself but I hear you're (laughs) making straight A's yeah you make pretty good grades yeah and it's so important just not to give up because you can understand someone When they have years and years of depression and wishing they were dead Mm -hmm. or just, you know, feel like they're failing and they just can't finish a class or a semester or they're feeling guilty that their parents are upset or disappointed, like that they just might want to give up. 
but you knew you had to do something to make to turn things around and you did and now you're actually accomplishing everything you were always had in there but it was just kind of muted or you know impaired and I'm just so excited you're you're more than halfway through vet school yeah I'm close to start clinics in January so it's kind of the home stretch I'm done with like the class part so that's exciting that's amazing Mm -hmm. well the last thing I'll say uh before we maybe record something else on a little different topic that's relevant or related is um, just how much you are using your struggles to help others and to be very public and open and that is another topic I'm very passionate about is how secrets or internalized problems have a lot of power to hurt you. And I think secrets have the power that you give them. And if you're at peace with some kind of topic or subject or issue that you view as shameful or embarrassing, then you're going to hide it or be private about it. I mean, some people are even like that about therapy, Mm -hmm. which I understand. They don't want anyone to know they're in therapy. And others are really proud of it. And they're like telling their friends, I got to, I get to go to a psychologist or a shrink and, you know, oh, who's your shrink? And, you know, it's almost like for them, a neat thing and a neat opportunity that their parents are giving them. And others talk about it like a punishment or miserable or something to be ashamed of. And so I, I love what you said when we were speaking earlier is one of the reasons you like to be so open and share with people is because at one point you thought you were the only one who felt that way Mm -hmm. and mental illness makes you feel so alone and you don't ever want anyone to feel that way and you don't care if people say you've been depressed or you've been suicidal for years or you've tried medication or you've been in therapy or you you don't care like do what I want to help as many people as I can I don't care if anyone uses that information in a negative way. It's a chance I'm willing to take because I'm at peace with it. And I'm proud of my struggle and my survival of a really, really debilitating illness. Yeah. I worked hard. I'm like, I'm a badass. Like, I worked hard. Yes. So why should I not share that with everyone? Like, it was hard and I got through it. And like, I don't see that in a negative light at all. I'm like proud that I was able to get through all that. Yes. So if somebody wants to use that in a negative light, that's fine. But I don't care. That is such a good way to put it. Like, you are a survivor of unimaginable pain. Yeah mental anguish, pain, suffering. I mean, you could go on and on. And and we haven't even barely talked about the anxiety that mm-hmm. you've endured, some panic and social anxiety. But that is so much to be proud of. And the invisible suffering, you know, people are so, and they should be so proud of people who have survived anything from like war trauma to cancer battles. But a lot of people don't know those who are suffering unimaginable psychic pain and emotional pain. And so I'm so glad you are proud of that. Like, that's unbelievable. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And I love your story. And I just love seeing how you have come full circle. I know you've known me half my life now. So you've definitely seen me grow up. Uh, It's such a privilege. I love it. Well, thank you, and we'll definitely be talking again. Thanks for inviting me.